Well, good morning, Christ Bible Church. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Honestly, that was the worst it's ever been. <laughs> this guy again. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> good morning, CBC. There we go. Uh, so good to be with you all as we gather to uh, worship our God. If you're new to CBC, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, we don't pass out uh, any notes for the sermon, but we do provide in the back uh, books that are just the book of Ephesians or whatever book we're preaching through uh, that's just a page of text on one side, a blank page on the other side, uh, so that you can take notes. So if you're new here uh, and you would like one of those, they're in the back. You can grab them to take notes uh, if that would be helpful for you uh, during uh, the sermon here. Um, but uh, as Zach mentioned, we are continuing to work through uh, Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians, and uh, this morning we are in dead center in the middle of chapter 4. Uh, so if you uh, join me in opening up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we are going to read together verses 17 to 24. This is the word of the Lord. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do desire to be people that walk as you walk. Lord, we don't want to walk according to the patterns of the world, according to the life that uh, those of us who have found you, who've been renewed by you, Lord, that life that we left. And so we thank you for this reminder as we work through Ephesians this morning that we are not that old person, but you have created us as a new person. Lord, that we have been born again because of the work of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to live according to that reality, according to what you've done in our lives, that we might honor you uh, with all that we do. Father, work uh, in our hearts and our minds through the power of the Spirit this morning to rightly see and understand you, to rightly see Christ and apply these words to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. If you like to go camping, as me and my wife do, you frequently will see, as you're out in the forest, bumper stickers, t-shirts, pretty much any other thing that you can sell with the phrase, not all who wander are lost. It's like, if you are a, if you are a person who likes to camp and you don't have this somewhere, do you even like to camp? Uh, it's perhaps the most overused uh, phrase of those who love the outdoors, but it's everywhere. Uh, for those of you who love Uh, Tolkien, you know that, even though everybody else knows, that this actually comes from the Lord of the Rings. 
Uh, it's not belonging to some person who you know, thought of this and is brilliant. It actually has its roots in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, and the Riddle of Strider, uh, who is a man who seems like a wanderer, but he's not indeed lost. This phrase in our culture today is meant to convey that not all of those people who are wandering out, who find themselves just walking through the woods and hiking, are doing so helplessly or aimlessly. To those on the outside, they may seem lost indeed. Why would you go on a hike that lasts two days? I still don't understand that. Uh, But to those people who are doing these with a purpose, they understand. I'm trying to see creation. I'm trying to do something uh, and accomplish something. They wander with a purpose. But you say, Randy, what does this have to do with Ephesians 4? Well, first, it just proves that I can too quote Tolkien. Uh, but, But beyond that, The real reason I I use this to try to bring us in and to get us uh, situated as we begin the text here is because Paul is saying the converse of this. He's not saying anything about not all who wander are lost, but what he is saying as he opens up verse 17 here is all who are lost wander. Paul is very concerned throughout the whole book of Ephesians about Christian behavior and Christian living. And here in verse 17, he uses this term, walk, twice. And we could literally translate this in in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. It's the exact same word. Uh, And what he is saying is literally, be careful about your former pattern of life. Don't walk as you used to walk or as the world walks. Paul has also used this phrase three times previously in the book of Ephesians, and he still is going to use it three more times in the last two chapters of Ephesians. You might have noticed this. Paul is constantly throughout the text of Ephesians drawing a comparison to what you once were or to the world compared to the Christian or what you are now. And so we use this phrase this morning, and we start with that riddle of Strider, to help us focus and say how we live matters. That's what Paul is trying to convey this morning. We should be people who look at our lives and live according to Jesus. That's why Paul starts in verse 17 before he says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. He says, now this I say and I testify in the Lord. We could bring that to a more general way of saying I say this, and I really, 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 really mean it. Pay close attention, people of Ephesus, people of CBC. What I am saying really matters. It's important. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. And so the first question we have to answer then is say, okay, how do Gentiles walk? Well, Paul tells us somewhat plainly. They walk in the futility of their minds. The word that we see here, translated as futility, has with it a sense of purposelessness. They're walking aimlessly. They do the same thing, hoping for a different result, but deep down know this is only going to lead them into despair. Why do the Gentiles have such purposelessness? Because they have routinely uh, turned to a pursuit of sensuality. And what he means by this is things that appeal to the senses as their purpose. The Gentiles walk according to whatever might bring them pleasure in life. They want to have feeling or they want to have enjoyment. They would use words like we use today, 
Speak your truth. Live your truth. Do whatever makes you happy. This is the path that the Gentiles walk. And it's not just the Gentiles in the first century. We see this all around us today. This week, I was listening to a podcast uh, about a guy who leads um, a large organization about changes in the workforce. I do this not because you know, there's lots of changes at CBC. We have a very small staff. There's not a lot of us working together. Uh, we've all been working together for a long time. Um, but I like to keep my finger on the pulse of what is the secular world that many of you live in actually like. And what this man who was uh, talking and saying is in the midst of what I guess is called the great resignation, essentially bosses can't find employees or keep employees, uh, there is something that is happening, and it's that people are beginning to look to their job more and more for a sense of purpose. Now, he did this as saying, if you run a company, if you don't give your employees a sense of purpose, they're probably going to leave and find a company that will give them a sense of purpose. But as I sat and listened to that, I thought, this reveals something very clearly about the culture and the people that are around us. It's one that is indeed looking for purpose, but can't find it. I couldn't imagine when I was 16 looking to AMC theaters for my purpose, or Best Buy, even worse, right? Uh, selling e-machines, if you remember what those were uh, back in the day, uh, right? But our culture is now in a place that it's constantly looking to that which honestly can't provide purpose for purpose, because it's full of people who are purposelessness, who, who have no aim in their life. They have no sense of fulfillment, and so they're looking for this. They're looking for transcendence. It's a group of people who want to be part of something bigger than themselves, but as they look around them, they have no idea what that actually could be. They don't know what the bigger is. So they switch careers looking for purpose. They might become activists and fight for some cause that they believe in, but all the while, what does Paul say and what do we see as we just observe this from our modern culture? These things prove to be empty. Why? Well, Paul makes it very clear. They are alienated from the life of God. They don't understand who they are or what their purpose is. The only one that can give these people true purpose is the one that they have become deaf to his voice. So they look to an employer to give them purpose, to give them fulfillment. This is why GCU, for all those of us that have been here for a long time, remember 12 years ago or so when they changed their tagline, find your purpose, people ate it up. Why? Because every 18-year-old, 20-year-old, 40-year-old that's in the secular world is trying to find their purpose. And GCU promised, come here, find your purpose and give us lots of money while you do it, right? This is why that, that, that line, that tagline, that mission resonated so greatly across the United States that made GCU one of the fastest growing colleges. People want purpose. They're asking the questions, why am I here? Why do I matter? But they can't find answers. So they bounce from hobby to hobby, job to job, cause to cause, even pleasure to pleasure, but they only find themselves in a deeper and deeper pit. How does Paul describe them? Greedy. Not greedy in the sense of pursuing more and more material wealth, although uh, that certainly is something that's common and probably uh, many of these people were struggling with. But what Paul is saying is they are greedy to do and try anything that would give them a sense of satisfaction in life. 
The path apart from God, the secular path in our day and age today is one that leads someone into ever-increasing levels of depravity in pursuit of purpose and meaning. The nature of sin is that it always promises to give us and provide something, but it never actually delivers. It provides a temporary satisfaction, but the next time you want that same satisfaction, you need increasing levels of depravity. You need to participate in the sin in an even greater level to get the same result. They need this more and more to feel the same small effect. And what is the result? They're driven further and further and further from who they were created to be, becoming increasingly blind to the hand of God and to the will of God. But Paul stops in the middle of this, in verse 20, and says to the believers who are reading this letter to us today, that's not you. You should not be somebody marked by a depraved mind, a mind that's pursuing selfish pleasures. That's not you. That's not the way you learned Christ. While the person apart from God is marked by aimlessness or purposelessness, Paul reminds us in verse 20, if you belong to Jesus, your aim is Jesus. Those that belong to Christ who were Christians were taught a different way of learning. They learned Christ. But we might ask, what does it mean to learn Christ? Peter O'Brien in his commentary sums it up very helpfully, uh, I think, in this way. Learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. This involves submitting to his rule of righteousness and responding to his summons to standards and values completely different from what they had previously known. In short, what does it mean that they learned Christ? It means that they learned that becoming a Christian involves a radical change, a conversion, if you will. As a result, Paul is saying their lives should be drastically different than they were before they met Christ. And we should pause and ask ourselves, is that true of our lives today? Do our lives look different than that of the secular world? Do our priorities look different? Do our values look different? Or are we perhaps being the people who have been tempted to say we follow Christ and yet submit to the wisdom of the world? What's also striking here is there is an assumption on Paul's part, as I was working and reading through this, I laughed this week, because the Apostle Paul is assuming that those who belonged to the church were indeed shaped and formed by some type of instruction to teach them these things. They learned Christ, meaning they were actually taught. When they became Christians, they learned fundamentals, namely regarding Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he wants from them. Paul assumes that they have basic doctrines instilled into them. Something basic but is, but it's, uh, and often missed but is revealed here. You have to know Christ before you can follow him. Christian conversion requires Christian learning. Modern church culture, in my opinion, has undervalued the importance of shaping people as they're introduced to Jesus. And the tradition that I grew up in, this is how you presented Jesus. Hey, your life, it's not that great, right? Wouldn't you like something better? Of course. Well, there is a better option. You don't need to be 
feeling the weight of guilt. There's a man called Jesus. He died for your sins. If you believe in him, he pays the price for everything. I'm like, that's great. I believe. Okay, get baptized. Okay, get baptized. All right, see you later. That's the formal instruction that many people face when they become Christians in our world today. In many churches and traditions all over our nation, there is a distinct lack of instruction on who Jesus is, what scripture is, what things like the Trinity are, and many other basic Christian beliefs. We have people who are becoming Christians who have never been taught Christ. And we should, as Christians, as believers, be people who try to retrieve that great value of teaching Christ. And as we talked about last week, the church has been given teachers and pastors and shepherds to instruct and equip so that the people of the church can do the ministry. That is your job. We should be looking for people that we can literally teach Christ to. There is probably somebody in your life right now that would benefit from a more formal instruction about who Jesus is. They've only ever been taught, Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins and I need to be baptized. That was the end of their Christian teaching. You have an opportunity to help that person learn Jesus. Reach out to them. Encourage them. If you're sitting here today and that's you, and you say, when I became a Christian, all that I ever did was say yes to Jesus and nobody ever taught me anything. Well, you have an opportunity to do something about it. Reach out to somebody in this room. Fill out a card in the back and those of us that are on staff here at the church can help connect you with somebody that can give you that more formal instruction and teach you Christ. How can somebody submit to the teaching of Jesus if they don't know what that teaching is? But unfortunately, that's the situation that many people find themselves in right now. We should be people who teach people in Christ, who remind people, just as we talked about last week that I mentioned, what it means to follow Christ, that we build up the church together. We should recover the practice of teaching Christ as we share him with those that we are praying, churn to Jesus and away from their sins. Because these people have learned Christ, Paul says here in chapter 4, they're now able to turn from that old pattern of living. Those who were futile in their thinking and were destined for purpose were taught, or purposelessness were taught Christ and now have a different path ahead of them. And at the end of this chapter, he's going to give specific moral instruction. But before he does that, Paul takes a moment to establish a foundation for which those specific moral instructions will be lived out from. And he knows he must first deal with that pesky old life. And so he gives three commands as he turns to the believers. He says this, you need to put off your old self, you need to be renewed, and you need to put on the new self. What do these commands mean? Well, we start off with that old self. How do you put off the old self? Unfortunately, there's a misconception that some people believe that when they become Christians, they won't have the same struggles. That they believe in Jesus, they repented of their sins, and that means all of the temptation, all the problems of their life, it will vanish. Jesus is going to take care of that. Uh, sin will have no effect on my life anymore. But the problem is, 
Most of us in here have a life experience that tells us differently. How many of us in here are frustrated that we struggle with the same forms of sin that we did when we were in middle school? I know that's me. I know I get frustrated that I still have problems getting angry at silly things or having pride in my heart or feeling a sense of superiority against others. And you pray and say, Lord, I thought you said you were going to change me. Why do these things still lurk? Well, Paul is revealing something to us today. We need to constantly be putting off the old self. What Paul is talking about here at the end of this section is not the process of becoming a believer, the one-time conversion event. I believe he's talking about a daily routine that we commit ourselves to as Christians. We should see here that the Christian life is more than just conversion. Conversion was the first fundamental shift, a turning away from sin and a turning towards God, but we still have to pursue God day in and day out. The condemnation of sin, the internal sentence that it carried with, is dealt decisively with at the moment of conversion. If we profess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we trust in him, we can wake up every morning knowing that whatever happens, if we die today, we're going to heaven. But the problem is, that is true, but also sin continues in this world. Sin continues in our hearts. Just because at the moment of conversion we know that we are decisively saved, that our salvation is secure, does not mean the corrupting work of sin simply vanishes. We fight sin and the corruption that sin has brought into this world each and every day for the rest of our lives. So while conversion happens once and for all, we have confidence at that moment that we are saved. There is an ongoing necessity in our lives that Paul is pointing out here to live out the reality that we don't belong to this old pattern anymore, and instead, we belong to Jesus. Part of combating the power of sin in our lives is reminding ourselves that we are not slaves to sin anymore. When faced with temptation, even when we might give in to temptation, we can confidently say in those moments, that's not who I am. I'm putting that off. I won't let the devil use that to define me. I let Christ define me, for I belong to him. I will move from sin, and I will move towards Christ day after day. Part of what we learn when we become Christians, when we're taught Christ, is that there is no limit to his mercy and forgiveness for those that belong to him. We know confidently every single day that no matter what we do, he forgives us. And that empowers us to say, this old way of living is not who I am. And so when we hear the words of Satan telling us, like, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, like, are you even really saved? We can say, I know I am, Jesus bought me. I belong to him. This old pattern of life, this old self, I'm taking these rags off. This jersey is not the team I play for anymore. And we move towards Christ and further and further away from the old self and the old thinking. We have to be careful, however, as we begin to do this, not to adopt a works-based mentality. It's very easy as we see ourselves pursuing Christ and turning to Christ and saying no to sin each and every day that we start to think, I need to do X in order to be saved. Paul has already gone through great lengths in the book of Ephesians to remind, our, to remind us of the source of our salvation. 
It's not our works, it's Christ and Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 told us, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is what you have learned. It's a fundamental understanding of Christianity to understand Paul correctly here, then we have to keep this front and center. We are saved by Christ and Christ alone. Put off that old self. Get rid of it. It's not who you are. But then he begins to move. We might understand this. Okay, old self, rejecting sin, my old pattern of life. I belong to Jesus, not this anymore. Check. Second command, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Too many prepositions. We read that and say, um, come again, Paul? Put off the old self, that's easy. It's nice, simple for people like me, that's simple. Be renewed in the spirit of the mind is not that easy to understand. And so we read that and we get confused. Or some of us just gloss over and we jump right to the last thing. Put on the new self. Okay, that's what it means. Put on the new self. But Paul has split these for a reason. And so this middle phrase we have to wrestle with and begin to understand. And it can mean one of two things. It can mean either you are being renewed by the Holy Spirit, so capital S, Spirit, in your mind regarding the work of God's Spirit. So God's Spirit is renewing your mind. Or it can mean that you should just be renewed in the Spirit of your mind, referring to the location of this renewal. It's either the Holy Spirit renewing your mind, or Paul is saying, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, a location in your innermost being. Neither interpretation leads you to a wrong place theologically. And indeed, we can say confidently that what renews you is the Holy Spirit. Uh, you are depraved. You need the Holy Spirit to resurrect you. We've talked about that all the time. But what Paul is talking about here, I believe, is not that interpretation. While it would be legitimate theologically and even grammatically, I believe that Paul here is focusing on the person. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit in mind. He has the actual work of the radical change of a person. And so I believe that we should interpret this section when he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind as using two synonyms to say the same thing this morning. Be changed from the inside out. Before Paul is going to get to the outward working of the morality of a believer, he first wants to work on the inward heart and mind. A polished outside does not make a clean inside. Just ask Indiana Jones. Wasn't that funny, I guess. Somebody died in Indiana Jones because of this, okay? Have some mercy on them, right? This isn't behavioral change that Paul's concerned about here. He says, as believers, you are to have an inward change. Your mind is changed from that which set you on a path of greedy destruction, seeking pleasure after pleasure, and instead, through Christ, your innermost being should be changed. Think about the path of the Gentile at the beginning of this section. Bad thinking leads to bad living. In the futility of their minds, they are led into total depravity seeking things that they can never get. Paul is now returning to that same path and saying part of living as a Christian 
is not just what people see on the outside. We should be equally committed to having our innermost life purified as well. Right thinking leads to right living. They were previously darkened and unknowing, but because of Christ, being taught Christ, they have been renewed and made alive from the inside out. But the innermost being is not something that we often like to spend time thinking about. When was the last time that you were quiet by yourself for even 15 minutes praying and examining your innermost being? Examining the desires of your heart, the desires of your mind, and asking yourself, is this, Lord, what you desire? Are my desires, is my thinking in line with you? Or am I giving myself into, even in the inside, even though outwardly I might not express it this way, the old patterns of thinking, things that are going to promote my desires? Dealing with our insides is difficult. Quiet contemplation is not something many people like. And I get it. I hate it. Right? To be quiet for even like five minutes is the worst. Right? To go and hang out with somebody and you're just, it's quiet. I can't handle it. Like 30 seconds in, I just got to start talking. It doesn't matter what I'm going to talk about. But it's quiet. It's weird for me to be quiet. Our society has created uh, this as the normative thing. We like noise. I think when you go to the gym, what's happening? Some obnoxious song, you know, probably Hillary Duff, for whatever reason, she still is like every, she, that girl, she got a long, she had two songs and they still played to this day. But it's like over and over, just loud and booming as you're going to the gym. If you go to the mall, what is there? There's always music. There's always sound. Think about the, la- even the grocery store. You go to Fry's and there's music on and some Fry's person telling you something, right? When's the last time you went someplace that was quiet? That you walked in and there wasn't some type of manufactured noise playing. The reality is our culture hates silence. We don't want to look inside. We won't want to have quiet contemplation. Noise allows us not to deal with the inward parts of our life. Noise for me allows me not to deal with pride or insecurity. Noise for me allows me to rationalize selfishness. But that does not excuse us from what Paul is saying. He's saying your innermost beings need to be renewed. Even though we live in a noisy, loud culture, we need to find time to examine the inward parts of our hearts, of our minds, to be renewed from the inside out. We must be people that align even our thinking with God. It should be no surprise to us in a time with so loud and so busy, when secular society has promised to give so much, but in return has promised only despair that we now see in our society a wide push on mental health. Now, mental health is good. I'm not bringing this up to say that there's something wrong with pursuing mental health. And indeed, that's the opposite. That's what Paul's arguing for here. But why do we see this? Because our secular society has created a place of living that people's minds have become scrambled by chaos. It's so loud, it's so noisy, it's so full of promises that people's minds have been scrambled. And so what do we see? We see society as a whole more depressed, more medicated, more turning to substances, more unsettled with each passing year. People know that their thinking is broken 
and they're turning to somebody for help. And it's a good thing to, to seek help. But the reality is the only true and permanent mental health is achievable in Christ. Secular psychology might help a little bit, but it's not going to deal with the depravity of the mind. That has been Paul's argument up to this point. You learned Christ. You must learn to think differently. You've been taught that there's a new pattern of life, a fundamental reorientation that starts in your inward parts and then becomes outward. You were taught the true and better way. Right thinking precedes right living. Paul wants somebody who thinks right and therefore acts right. And this is why before Paul gets to this third command to put on the new self, he wants to deal with the inward part of a person first. There is a difference between somebody who does the right thing for selfish motives and somebody who does the right thing simply because it's the right thing. Paul says, as Christians, you were taught to be changed from the inside out, to do the right thing because it's the right thing. So finally, believers, put on the new self. The old was without purpose. It was living to please itself. And the ultimate ending of this was a state of numbness, blindness, chasing purpose through pleasure, but never finding anything enduring. But the Christian has been presented with something different. Don't live for yourself. Live for God. Imitate him and pursue him. Put on the new self, the one that's created through the blood of Christ. How do you do this? How do you put on the new self each and every day? Well, he says it very simply. You do it by chasing the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is talking here about the day-to-day life of the Christian, the tedious, repetitious work of being a person who pursues and exemplifies Christ in their life. This means that we must be people who know God. Sounds simple, sounds basic. When I was eight years old, the coolest person in the entire world was Michael Jordan. I had a life-size six-foot-six stand-up cardboard cutout of Michael Jordan in my room. I had an armband, the same red bull's color of Michael Jordan. I had Michael Jordan shoes, and I even shot the ball like Michael Jordan, even though I could get off the ground like eight inches, which meant you had a very bad jump shot because if you know anything about basketball, you should jump up, and I was just kicking my legs out because I wanted to be like Mike, right? The, The reality is, how did I do this? You watched, I watched Michael Jordan play. Highlight after highlight, play after play. I stuck my tongue out like him. I wore my clothes like him. I dribbled the ball like him. Why? Because I wanted to imitate Michael Jordan. He was the greatest basketball player on earth. Paul is saying here, you need to imitate God. If you don't look to God, look at God, understand who God is, how can you possibly imitate him? Right? It'd be like a kid who's saying, like, I'm going to be like Mike, and then he's shooting threes. Everybody knows Michael Jordan doesn't shoot threes, man. Right? You have to understand who God is. We have to be people of his word. If a Christian is going to put on the new self, they must be a person who is constantly encountering the character and person of God as they read his word seeing how God works through the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means we can look to Genesis and we can look to Revelation and say, that's the same God. 
And I can emulate his righteousness and holiness by understanding who he is and what he's done and what he desires for his people. We have to see him if we're going to practice imitating him. We have to be people committed to his word, to seeing God's righteousness as we read through scripture, seeing his holiness as we see page after page what he's done and how he has lived so that we might imitate him. Paul is telling us in summation here, walk like God. Don't walk like the world that hates him. A few questions as we wrap up for self-evaluation. First, honestly ask yourself, What does your life look like, internally and outwardly? What does it resemble? Earlier I read Peter O'Brien's quote regarding learning Christ. He said, learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person, being shaped by his teaching. This involves submitting to the rule of righteousness and responding to the summons to standards and values completely different from the world. Does this describe you? What does your life right now tell you about what you truly submit to. What standards are you following? Are you pursuing the standards of God or are you pursuing the standards of this world? If you're here this morning and you've never submitted to the righteous rule of Christ and accepted him as your savior, don't leave this morning without doing that. Don't leave this morning without reaching out to somebody. Even put a card in the back and I will personally call you tomorrow and talk to you and begin the process of teaching you Christ that you might submit yourselves to him and understand him. Number two, what is the status of your inward life? When was the last time you had an extended time of solitude to pray and examine your heart and mind? And if it's been a long time, as I suspect it is for many of us here, I would challenge everybody in here to find a half hour on your calendar in the next two weeks to go and pray. By solitude, I don't mean just like sit emptily, empty yourself like some Buddhist or Eastern teaching. I mean, go to the Lord and pray and say, Lord, help me examine my inward parts that I might see if even on the inside, there's things that need to be flushed out and I need to give them to you. Find time in your calendar in the next two weeks to reflect and take care and examine your inward heart and mind. And finally, what's your relationship with God's word? Are you somebody who is growing in your understanding of God, or are you currently stagnant in your life right now? If the stagnant person is you, one way to overcome this is to have a reading buddy. Everybody everybody needs buddies, and there's no perhaps better buddy than one that's going to read the Bible with you. Find somebody, perhaps even in this room, your spouse, who you're going to encourage each other and read through the same scriptures together to be people who pursue God's word, diving into it together, that you might be encountering God and growing in his holiness and righteousness. We should be people that pursue God from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of your word to be people who don't live lives that are just changed outwardly, but Lord, people whose inward minds and hearts have been changed, the innermost parts of our being, Lord, uh, that is constantly being renewed as we encounter you, as we see you, as we pursue you. And so we pray that we would indeed be those kinds of people. Be people who are pursuing you, pursuing your righteousness and your holiness, 
seeing you in a greater and greater sense of clarity and then examining our own hearts and minds and lives and saying, am I following that standard? Lord, help us, equip us, empower us to be people who pursue you and pursue your word. Lord, give us clarity as we find time to examine our hearts and minds as we come to you and pray and seek uh, a time to examine ourselves, Lord, that you might bring things to light that we have been holding on to, old patterns that we have yet to give up. And Lord, would you allow us to begin to express that and to see that and to correct that, that we might be constantly renewed and changed from the inside out. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.